We're, uh, we're wrapping up our series on the Protestant Transformation. We've been tweaking the, the traditional name of the Protestant Reformation just to remind us that, that the things that, that our fathers and mothers were, were holding so dearly to be true from the Bible, uh, as they were going back to Scripture alone as the authority for what are we to believe about God and what are we to do with our lives, that these weren't just doctrines. These weren't just dusty, sterile things that you read in thick theology books. That This was truth that was transforming their lives. It was transforming their homes. It was transforming their towns and their whole countries. Uh, and that power is still available to you and to me and to the church and to the world as the gospel uh, takes hold of us, and as we believe these things, and as they change us. So we're really trying to, to remind one another that the gospel changes our lives. This isn't just stuff that we believe, um, like, a, like a legend or, or a fact that doesn't really apply to life anymore. Uh, this morning we're, you know, on the heels of Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're one of those uh, people that likes to go back and look at the origins of holidays and stuff, but you probably know whether it's been recent or you know, maybe it was third grade the last time you considered it, but Thanksgiving has something to do with the pilgrims, more or less. And so there was this voyage on the Mayflower from Plymouth, England, and they were supposed to, they're actually supposed to land somewhere around Virginia. The Virginia company had uh, sponsored this endeavor. There were 102 souls, I think, on board the Mayflower. Uh, only about 30 of them were, were, uh, were there for religious purposes, trying to get away from uh, the restrictions that they felt were, um, were binding their conscience, either from the Church of England or just from uh, the, the hardness of trying to live as refugees in the Netherlands. Um, so a lot of history there. But what's interesting to me is only 30, about a third of the people on board that boat uh, were, were considered the, the pilgrims. They weren't really, they weren't called pilgrims until the 19th century. Uh, they called themselves separatists. They called themselves saints. And the rest of the crew, uh, the rest of the people on board were either the crew or other people who were just looking for a new start. And they had all kinds of kind of crazy backgrounds. But the pilgrims, as we think of them today, uh, it's fine to call them pilgrims. They, they were pilgrims because they were leaving one land, going to another, and their goal, their goal was to establish a new church. Their goal was to be able to worship the Lord and grow in grace and follow Jesus without any restraints from laws that were opposed to the Bible and without any, uh, anything that would hinder their pursuit of Jesus. They wanted to get closer to Jesus, and that's why they got on board the Mayflower. You and I are pilgrims too. Uh, Peter referred to, uh, he wrote two letters in the, in the New Testament. I want you to actually turn to his second letter, 2 Peter. Uh, we're going to look at the e very end of his second letter. In his first letter, he referred to uh, his readers, his audience, as strangers and pilgrims. Uh, Peter uses that expression, strangers and aliens or pilgrims. Uh, and, and that's what we are. You and I are pilgrims because we're making a journey uh, from this world to the next world. And we are seeking to worship the Lord according 
uh, to how Scripture directs our conscience. And so let's stand in honor of Scripture, of God's Word, and hear how Peter is calling us to continue to grow, to continue to be transformed by the grace of God and the gospel. I'm going to pick up in verse 14 and just read through the end of his letter. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these things, of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for giving us timeless truths. And Lord, thank you that these truths are not powerless or sterile, but in fact, are life-changing and transformative. Would you continue to help us to grow in grace, to become more and more the men and women and children you fashioned us to be? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I really want you to to zero in on, on two verses here, verses 15 and 18, uh, where Peter says that uh, the Lord's Patience uh, means that there's salvation coming, that the longer uh, he delays his judgment day, the more people can repent and be saved. Uh, And that we who are waiting for that day are called to grow in grace, as you see in verse 18. Uh, And both of those are really, really important things to keep in mind this morning. Let's Let's zero in on, uh, on salvation uh, as we're wrapping up this series. I think it's good for us to just be mindful that we're here uh, because, well, <laughs> maybe lots of different reasons, but I hope at least one of the reasons is you're here because you want to have a relationship with God. You are aware that your, your sin has, uh, in many ways, uh, separated you from that relationship and that you and I can get close to God and have that relationship restored through Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a second. But, but when Peter's saying that the Lord's patience means salvation, that we can count that patience of God toward salvation, um, if you've got your passage open, if you've got your Bible open, look back at verse 9 that, that was before our text this morning. Um, because Peter's following up on a thought there where he says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that all should enjoy the salvation that God intends for them. So let me do a a survey of what that salvation means. Some of it directly applies here, and uh, some of it Peter 
explains in other parts of his letters, but throughout the whole Bible, when the Bible talks about salvation, I want you to understand that it's all-encompassing. But there's a past sense of salvation that we were saved, we were justified, and that happened in, in our past if you're in relationship with Jesus. And then because you were justified, you are now being sanctified. That you were saved in the past from sin's penalty, and now you are being saved right now in the present from sin's power, um, from temptation and the things that are contrary to the kingdom of God. And then in the future, you and I, our hope is that there's a day coming when God is going to transform the world, the heavens and the earth, and that there's a salvation that we anticipate when we will be saved from sin's presence entirely. Past, present, and future salvation. Um, Let me mention briefly what it means to be saved from sin's penalties, sin's power, sin's presence. Um, A couple weeks ago, we were looking at Jude, this one chapter epistle right before Revelation. And Jude said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And we were just reflecting on what what a miracle that is to consider that you and I could stand before God and not feel the weight of shame for things that we've done that we know are wrong. We don't have to fear rejection from him. We don't have to fear punishment. But in fact, because the gospel is true, you and I can actually stand before him blameless with great joy, knowing that he's pleased with us because he has given to us as a gift the blamelessness of another, the blamelessness of Jesus. That in, in, uh, in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, that, that Jesus came so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He laid down his life so that he could present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, that she might be holy and blameless. And this is... This is what we mean when we talk about justification in the church. That you and I, through faith in Jesus, our righteous representative, he takes our unrighteousness on himself on the cross. He becomes our sinful substitute. And then in exchange for our sins, he gives us his goodness. He gives us his righteousness. And that justifies us. That puts us in this category and this condition of being approved before God where where he really does view us as beautiful and blameless. And that's the glory of justification, that it's not anything that I do, it's not my works, it's not my effort, it's not my religiosity, it's not my goodness, it's Jesus' goodness. It's Jesus' righteousness that gets transferred to all who have faith in him. And that justifies us. And we can stand before his throne blameless with great joy. And that's a remarkable thing. That's what we were saved from in the past. Justification happens once, boom, you believe in Jesus, you're justified. And that carries on for eternity. And then after we're justified, we're sanctified. And that's happening right now. We're being sanctified. So, you know, 
when you're reading here in, uh, in First Peter, uh, I'm sorry, in Second Peter, you hear about how um, in verse 14, you are waiting for these, so then be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace uh, with God. So, all right, I'm, I'm going to see if you're tracking with me. I just got done reminding you from two weeks ago we were in Jude and how Jude says, hey, guess what? You can stand, by, by faith in Jesus, you can stand before God's throne blameless and with great joy, right? But now look at verse 14, and Peter is saying, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Be diligent to be found by him blameless. So if you're tracking with this, you should be going, well now, which is it? Am I given blamelessness as a gift? Or do I have to be diligent to be found blameless before him. Well, think of it this way. When you and I are justified, we're given blamelessness as a gift. And it's not something that we achieve for ourselves. It's what Jesus achieved for us, and it's a gift to us. And then Jesus calls us to grow into and become what we are. You are blameless in God's eyes. Now act like it. Live like it. Be diligent to pursue that and to embody that. Incarnate the truth. Just as Jesus is the word of God incarnate and he puts flesh on and he's among us, we are to incarnate the word spoken to us that you are justified and and put flesh on that. Make that a reality so that it's evident and, and, and is proof to other people around you that you were justified. And now you are being sanctified. Paul puts it like this in Colossians. So don't lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's being renewed. You and I are being renewed, and we're being renewed toward a purpose, toward a goal. Uh, I was on the way in to church this morning, and I'm, uh, I live in Fishersville, and I come up 250, and in Fishersville, there's a trestle, train trestle, and so you go under that, and you pass the subway and the Exxon station, um, and on the trestle is a big, uh, empty coal train heading out to West Virginia, you know, waiting to get loaded up, and it's just car after car after car after car after car after car, uh, just endless, um, and I lost count. But every single car um, was, was similar in design. It's a coal car, and so it's got basically three funnels, you know, um, so that the coal will run out the bottom uh, and not get stuck. Uh, and they're designed the same, and they were engineered the same, and at some point in time, every one of those cars on that train came off of the assembly line somewhere where they make train cars. I have no idea where that is, but anyway. That thing rolls off of the assembly line, and it's gleaming, and it's got fresh paint, and it's just, you know, something that model railroad enthusiasts would just go crazy about. But every one of these cars, as they're just cruising along the railroad tracks through Fishersville, you know, one after another, every single one of them is rusted. Every single one of them has graffiti of some sort on them. Every single one of them 
has faded pain. Every single one of them is dented in some way. Every single one of them is ruined. On and on and on. No exceptions. That's us. We're made for a purpose. There was a time when you know, in God's eyes, we were, we were beautiful. We were exactly how he designed. Sins ruined us. We're rusted. We're covered in stuff we, we're, we're ashamed of. We don't, we, don't, we don't even like what we look like. Uh, we don't like what we see in the mirror. We're not happy with ourselves. All this stuff. That, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a big mess. But what I want to tell you is that what God is doing in your life and in my life is renewing you. Transforming you. And there's a day coming when you and I will be what we were intended to be, what the good creator intended to make us will be realized. And the sanctification is, is, is preparing us and growing us so that we can, can get a little bit of the rust rubbed off and get some of the paint, you know, the graffiti uh, uh, erased and get a fresh coat of paint and do what we were designed to do. That's a picture of sanctification. Steve Childers puts it this way. We often reduce the gospel to God's plan of salvation for lost people to be saved from sin's penalty, not realizing that it is also God's plan of salvation for Christians to be saved from sin's power. The same gospel message that saves sinners also sanctifies saints. And so when you and I are being sanctified, we're we're putting off the old, and we're endeavoring to put on the new. We're trying to become what we are through the power of belief in Jesus, the power of faith at work in us. And that's how we're being saved right now, and ultimately, we will be saved entirely from sin's presence. In verse, uh, this first, uh, verse 14, uh, Peter had mentioned, as you are waiting for these, these things, um, you know, so previously I guess there was something he was talking about that maybe we should reference. What, were, what are we waiting for? Um, the NIV translates it this way. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, looking forward to what? Look, look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's this day when Jesus returns and he brings judgment to the world. And there's going to be the overwhelming majority of people who aren't waiting, who aren't anticipating, who aren't preparing for that day. And that's why it's compared to a thief. Because thieves don't break into homes that are prepared. A thief is somebody who succeeds in breaking into an unprepared home that's being unwatched, that's not ready for the thief. And so the day of the Lord comes at a time when most people are not expecting it. And in verse 13, Peter says that according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which, the righteous, in which righteousness dwells. Uh, in which righteousness dwells, not sin. And one of the great promises that we're given in Revelation through the Apostle John and the visions that are given to him is a place where, as he says in, verse, in chapter 21, where God's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. And their death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And we call this glorification, our future salvation, when we're saved not only from sin's penalty through justification and from sin's power through sanctification, but also from the sin's presence through glorification. We're not going to take any sins with us 
into heaven. If we did, we'd pollute it, we'd corrupt it. And that's why it's so weird about our, our, our giving in to temptation. That's what's one of the motivations for our sanctification is why are we going to embrace and indulge in something that would profane heaven? And if we really want to be citizens in heaven, if that's really our aspiration and desire, why in the world are we messing around with mud pies in the slums when what's offered to us is this incredible eternity of happiness with Jesus? So that's, that's just a little picture of salvation, past, present, and future. Um, and, and so as we get back to this whole theme of the pilgrims and Reformation and so on, there was this expression uh, that was going around about the same time that the, that the pilgrims, you know, the separatists got on board the Mayflower. Uh, and it was this expression that's our last theme from this, you know, from the Reformation, and it was, it was called Semper Reformanda. It's a Latin um, uh, phrase, and the, the whole Latin sentence has been sort of uh, summarized into just those two words, semper reformanda. Uh, it sounds a little bit like the sticker you see on, on some cars or trucks uh, for people who are in the Marines or maybe you know, they've retired. Um, and, uh, and it says semper fi. It's a short for semper fidelis. Always faithful, always loyal. Well, semper reformanda means always semper, semper reformanda, always being reformed. Uh, this was an expression that came out of the Dutch, Second uh, Dutch Re Reformation. It doesn't mean always reforming. Uh, the grammar is important. It's a passive verb. It's being reformed, not doing the reforming. And so the church, the, 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 the whole phrase itself, uh, said something like this. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God according to the word of God. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, Semper Reformanda is not about constant fluctuations, but about firm foundations. It is about radical adherence to the Holy Scriptures, no matter the cost to ourselves, our traditions, or our own fallible sense of cultural relevance, right? Our fallible sense of cultural relevance. Well, I think it's important that you realize Peter, in his letter, is giving a warning. It's a, it's, a, it's a shot across the bow to us, to his audience 2,000 years ago and through the Holy Spirit to the church today to avoid cultural capitulation, to not be conformed to this world, to be, be transformed to the by the next world, by the gospel. Um, earlier, in chapter 2, Peter wrote how false teachers among you uh, will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and many will follow uh, their sensuality, and, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. All of this because, you know, basically the church is constantly uh, navel-gazing, trying to figure out how can we become more relevant, how can we, can we become, you know, cooler, how, how come people aren't listening to us or whatever? And so the temptation before the church over and over and over again in every generation is to let the world conform us. So here's an example. This is a book called Reformed and Always Reforming. And it's about how we've got to embrace some new theology and we've got to kind of, you know, get with the times and, and rethink some of the old things uh, that were laid down. You know, let's move a foundation stone or two around. It's kind of how, how the premise goes. Well, 
The problem is that this title of this book is taking that phrase, Semper Reformanda, and doing some really bad Latin, basically, because this is what it's supposed to say. Reformed and always being reformed. Always being changed by the word of God, rather than changing the word of God in order, in order to conform to culture. So we end up doing this, um, this thing where we're taking the salvation that's been given to us, that the Lord's patience has granted to us, and we end up trying to reform that salvation. And churches are doing this, and denominations are doing this. It's been happening since the apostles were around. That's why the warnings are there, and it continues to happen today. And it goes like this. People start reforming justification. They start reforming salvation in the past. And they start saying, well, you know, what about Jesus? He, he, he saved us, right? He's the Savior. But we're really not sure about the Bible's account of Jesus. We're really not sure, for instance, about his virgin birth. You know, we needed a sinless substitute. But it's popular to say, well, but can we re- should we really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Isn't that just sort of old-fashioned? Uh, my friend uh, Glenn Holman, who's a pastor at Hope Presbyterian, it's an evangelical Presbyterian church in Waynesboro, he used to be the pastor at uh, First Presbyterian downtown, which is the mainline Presbyterian church. We're the PCA. There's a bunch of alphabet soup. I'll fill you in later. They're different. Um, so Glenn used to be the pastor at First Pres. He transferred into their presbytery here in this region. And on the day that he transferred in, he was standing beside another guy who was taking his transfer exam who's going to be the pastor at First Pres Stanton. And they're being examined to make sure that these guys are holding to the faith that that presbytery, you know, wants to affirm. And the question came to both of these men simultaneously, do you believe in the virgin birth? And the guy who was going to become first uh, pastor at First President Stanton said no. Mary was a maiden, you know, Isaiah talks about, you know, the virgin will be with child. Uh, it was a maiden. That's what the real, you know, thing. And, and we don't really need to buy into all of the nostalgic and sort of folk religion of the virgin birth. And Glenn's just, what am I hearing? You know, he's, he's, he's incredulous. And they asked Glenn the same question, uh, Pastor Holman, Reverend Holman, do you believe in the virgin birth? And he says, well, of course I do. You know, it's, it's in the Bible. Both of those pastors were received into that presbytery. And then you question the virgin birth, and then you start questioning the miracles. And the quest for the historical Jesus, can we really believe that all these miracles happen? Come on. Aren't we more sophisticated than to believe that these things happen? And then you start questioning the, uh, the atoning, substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins. That, come on. I mean, a blood sacrifice to take away our sins? You know, we don't need all of that old-time religion. Yes, Jesus died as a loving example to us of what a sacrificial life looks like, but but I don't need an atonement for my sins. And then ultimately, they end up questioning the resurrection. Uh, despite the fact that Paul says that if Jesus was not raised, you're dead in your sins, and your faith is useless, it's futile, forget about it, go do something else. Go join the Rotary, but don't, don't mess with religion, don't mess with Christianity. Despite the fact that Paul says that he was raised for our justification, they will say that Jesus did not raise from the dead. And that's happening in churches today. Whole denominations. And then they, so they're not only questioning or trying to reform, you know, past tense salvation through justification, they start reforming what it means to be saved today. 
sanctification. What does it mean for us to grow and to become more like Jesus? Well, it gets watered down very quickly when you start, you know, rejecting not only the life of Jesus, but also the teachings of Jesus. He came to lay down his life to save us from our sins, and he came to teach us, to show us what does it mean to live this new life, life of the kingdom, and he taught us what it means when it comes to sex. He showed us that sex is something that's beautiful and it's good, but it's holy. And sex is meant to be treated in the context of a covenant. It's so holy and it's so good, in fact, that it needs the protection of lifelong promises. And it's not to be treated casually like a cheeseburger. And then he goes on to talk about sexuality. That that covenant, um, that promise, that lifelong promise is called marriage. And that marriage, Jesus taught us, is between a man and a woman. And that that covenant is designed to represent a new household, a new family, where a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hmm, that's significant, because now you have two becoming one, and that that reminds us of another truth from the Bible, how you have God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are three in one, and they are a triunity, and that marriage tells a parable of something greater than what that husband and wife are living out. And it's about an eternal reality of their relationship with God. And that's why gender matters. And that's why Jesus taught us about the value of being male and female. That we need to complement one another in these relationships. Because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit complement one another. They're different than each other and the same. A man and a woman are different from one another. And they're the same. And then ultimately, it just it keeps snowballing. They're all connected about how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to treat each other, and how we're supposed to relate to one another as simple human beings who are made and designed in the image of God and that we cannot be sanctified unless we affirm the value of the human being as the bearer of the image of God. We cannot honor the image of God in those who are you know, if we're rejecting these teachings of Jesus, we're not going to affirm the image of God in those who are too young, apparently. So young they're still in the womb, by the way. Uh, they're, they're too young to be of any value to us or too old to be of any value to us in this utilitarian view of humanity. Instead of a God-glorifying view of humanity that raises up those who are young and those who are old. And that raises up those who are black and those who are white and those who are tan and those who are whatever other color. And it raises up those who are rich and those who are poor and, and affirms all and teaches us that when you deal with your neighbor, you are called to love that person. And the reason why we sin against one another is that we forget we are made in the image of God. Why else would I be lying to somebody unless I'd forgotten that this person bears the image of God? Why else would I be lusting after somebody unless I've forgotten this person bears the image of God? Why else would I be abusing this person uh, unless I'd forgotten that they bear the image of God? That's why we sin. That's why we do these things to each other is we're forgetting what Jesus taught us. And some churches are just outright rejecting it completely. And then when you get to future salvation, you know, you know how this goes. They're going to reject what future salvation means. What does that mean? Well, it means that human souls have one of two destinations. 
eternity with God or eternity away from God? Eternity in heaven or eternity in hell? And whole churches and whole denominations are rejecting this. They are embracing false teachers who bring in destructive heresies and many will follow their sensuality and because of this, the way of truth will be blasphemed, right? Look at verse 16. Peter's talking about Paul. Paul says some hard things, right? Some of these are hard things. Which ignorant and unstable people distort or twist to their own destruction as they do to other scriptures. I can point to the minutes of the meetings of our mother denomination where every single one of these things that we've just covered has been denied and rejected outright. Where this, this word is twisted and distorted because of a commitment to be conformed to the world rather than to be reformed by scripture, transformed by scripture. But listen, before you and I are um, tempted to feel smug or elite or better than, than them, um, all right, so on the one hand, maybe we haven't rejected any of these truths. What about the places where we just kind of conveniently want to ignore some of the things of Jesus? Some of the teachings of Jesus that are hard for us. Some of the teachings of Paul that are hard for us. Where Jesus would call us to, um, hey, by the way, don't forget to love your enemy. How are we doing when it comes to loving those who are hard to love? Those who have hurt us. What about loving the poor? What about loving the hungry and, you know, doing the food drive? We could use your help, by the way. Uh, very convenient place for me to leverage that, I'll tell you what. Uh, how about loving the homeless? How about loving uh, your neighbor when uh, those lights go up yesterday or whenever it was, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they've got those lights or that inflatable or whatever the case may be. Uh, what about when it's hard to love people, right? And we just want to ignore that Jesus said to do that. And Oh, but we, we're holding on to Tulip, or we're holding on to the Solas, or we're holding on to our Reformed theology, but folks, has it transformed us? Are you different? Or are you the same old person you were when you first said, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but did you really? We're always being transformed, as the, as the Latin says, but truly as Peter's telling us in verse 18, listen, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is not static. Growing is movement, motion, it's got momentum to it, and you don't stay in the same place. That doesn't mean that it's just going to be this beautiful, smooth escalator ride to holiness. Listen, my path is like this. But by God's grace, I'm not the same person I was. Thank the Lord. And my wife thanks the Lord for that. She'd, she'd like to have more reasons to thank the Lord, but those are on the way, I hope. All right, so don't conform to this world, you know, the, the salvation-conforming mess that a lot of people embrace. But instead, be transformed by your salvation and grow in grace. Grow through the grace of justification. If you have been justified, if God has declared to be true of you that you are accepted, you are approved, you are beautiful, you are blessed, you are holy, you are good, if he has spoken 
that blessing over you, why in the world are we so touchy? Why are we so defensive? Why why are we so committed to proving our self-righteousness over and over and over again? If we're, if we're, I mean, the good news here is that there is such power in embracing justification to be true that if I was saved in the past, I'm still saved now, and I'm still justified just as I was, and that means that if somebody doesn't approve of me, I don't have to get bent out of shape. I mean, it hurts, of course, but what does that matter when I've got God's approval? And this will radically transform your marriage. And this will radically transform your home. And this will radically transform your relationship with your kids. Any relationship that's sideways, it will transform it. Why? Because you have the power to bring change to that because you have the power of the gospel at work in your life. Whether it's at work, whether it's on your team, whether it's with your roommate, whether it's, you know, wherever the case may be. If you stop bringing fuel to the fire, guess what happens? The fire goes out. If you are quenched and satisfied in what Jesus has done for you, you don't need to grab that and demand that from anybody else. And that you can be reformed by your sanctification. That, you know, um, Salim was telling us about Ryan and, and this man who was abusing his wife. He was an atheist. He was nasty. He was, a, he was just not fun to be around. And the gospel gets a hold of him, and he's justified, and then he becomes sanctified too. And the gospel is changing him. And he starts to become joyful. And he starts to become somebody that you actually want to spend time with. And he's kind to his wife. And his wife is pinching herself, going, oh, my gosh, how did this happen? This is amazing. This is great. Don't you want to be that guy? Don't you want to be that woman that people are pinching themselves about? Look at how the gospel has changed you. And the good news is that, you know, you're not supposed to just live up to one arbitrary standard of what the good Christian is supposed to look like. Can you, can you throw that idea out the window and let me give you a different idea. Just the real question is not, hey, how come you're not like so-and-so? How come you're not like Billy Graham? Or how come you're not like Mother Teresa? Or how come you're not like Don Bailey? The real question is, are you new? Are you a new creation? Are you still the same old you with a Jesus sticker on? Get rid of the sticker and get a new heart. Get a new heart through the gospel, believing in Jesus and walking with him and being his disciple and following him. It's not going to change you overnight, but it will change you. And people will start to notice. And they'll give thanks to God for the power of the gospel at work in your life. And then ultimately, we're, we're looking forward to our glorification that saves us too. We're pilgrims, right? We're on the way. We're not, we haven't arrived yet, but there is a day coming. And our goal right now is to look forward to that day and know that, all right, on that day, I'm going to be completely without sin, and it's going to be remarkable, and I don't even know if anybody's going to recognize me <laughs> without all this baggage. But that's coming, and it's my job now, as I'm growing today and tomorrow, next week, next month, I want to get closer to that objective. I wanna, this is the sanctification gap between where I am right now and where I want to be, and I want to close that gap. That's what it means to live in light of that day, where I can live a life now through the power of the gospel at work in me, believing in Jesus and following him, that people start to see more of that future reality on display in me. I'm like a a living 
walking preview of The Last Jedi. A little hint of what's to come. A little hint of the, the real, real show that's going to be on display forever. You and I, that's our calling as individuals, as households, as a congregation, as a church. To always be reformed by the gospel through the scriptures as we follow Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we, we need your help. Uh, none of us can, can transform ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit to transform us. That puts us in a place of need, puts us in a place of dependence. Uh, we don't like that. <laughs> My flesh doesn't like that. But we exalt in your resources, your promises to us uh, to give to all who ask you abundantly and freely for this grace and for this salvation. So if there are any here who are realizing that maybe they don't know what justification is or sanctification or glorification, they haven't connected these dots, Lord, would you help them take their first steps as followers of Jesus today? And please help the rest of us continue to, to take our steps. Maybe they're baby steps and maybe they're giant leaps forward. Um, either way, you get glory. But Lord, help us to, to become more like the men and women and children you've created us to be. Help us to, through the power of your spirit, rub off the rust and the nasty paint and become more and more um, those human beings you designed to bring blessing to the world and to love our neighbors and to glorify Jesus. We pray in his name.